0: Hello, welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast, the podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. On tonight's readings, we are going to be looking at Behind the Screen by Samuel Goldwyn. It is somewhat of an autobiography by one of the founders of MGM. I hope it helps you get to sleep or at least get a little bit drowsy so you're ready for sleep. I like bringing out all these episodes because I know it's helping a lot of people get a good night's rest. I do have a special favor for you though if it's helping you. Jump into your podcast app please leave a review and a rating. It helps me bring out more episodes, and it helps me reach more people that need to get a good night's rest. Other than that, all you have to do is lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Behind the Screen by Samuel Goldwyn Chapter 1 In which is filmed the birth of a nation. It was something more than nine years ago that I walked into a little motion picture theatre on Broadway. I paid ten cents admission. As I took my seat, a player piano was digging viciously into a waltz. Upon the floor, a squalid statuette lay under its rein, of peanut shells, and all around me, men, women, and children, were divided between the sustained comfort of chewing gum and the sharp, fleeting rapture of the nut, only a decade ago, yet this was a representative setting and audience for motion pictures, Likewise, typical was the film itself, for as were practically all productions of that day, this was only one or two reels, and faithful to the prevailing tradition, the drama of tonight was Western. I looked at the cowboys galloping over the Western Plains, and in their place there rose before me Henry Esmond crossing swords with the young pretender, wiry young D'Artagnan riding out from the Gascony on his pony to Paris of Richelieu, Carmen on her way to the bullfight where Don Jose waited to stab her. Why not? Here was the most wonderful medium of expression in the world. Through it every great novel, every great drama, might be uttered in the one language that needs no translation. Why get nothing from this medium save situations where just about as fresh and unexpected as the multiplication tables when I went into that theater, I had no idea of ever going into the film business. When I went out, I was glowing with the sudden realization of my way to the fortune. I could hardly wait until I told my idea to my brother in law, Jesse Lasky. Lasky, do you want to make a fortune? With these words, I burst in upon that evening. Lasky, who was at that time in the vaudeville business, indicated that he had no morbid dread of the responsibility of great wealth. Very well then, I continued. Put up some money. In what? In motion pictures, I answered. Motion pictures, scoffed he. You and I would be a fine pair in that business. Me, a vaudeville man, and you, a glove salesman. What do we know about the game? Besides, how about the trust? His last words touched upon a vital issue in the screen industry of that period. The truth of it was that the motion picture theatres throughout the country were practically at the mercy of ten companies, which for the privilege of showing pictures collected a weekly licence fee of $2 each from 15,000 theatres. I shall not enter here into the argument by which the Combine justified their taxation. I shall merely remark that the existent system presented an obstacle worthy of consideration. However, all the way home, I had been preparing an answer to this protest of Lasky's, and now I eagerly put it forth, Give the public fine pictures, I urged. Show them something different from western stuff and slapstick comedies, and you'll find out what will become of the trust. And why should your entertainment have to be so short? If it's a good story, there's no reason why it couldn't run through five reels. I tell you the possibilities of the motion picture business have never been touched. We could sell good films and long films all over the world. Eventually Lasky was convinced that my idea presented at least a good betting proposition and he agreed to add $10,000 to the equal amount which I put up provided he be relieved of any active management. Considering that in those days, many of the two reelers were made for less than a $1,000, our original capital seemed not only adequate to the immediate cost of production, but to a handsome margin for recovery from a possible first failure. With this assumption of strength, we took our next logical step. We hunted for somebody who would make our pictures for us. It was natural that the first person whom we should think of in this connection was Mr. D. W. Griffith. He was then directing for the Biograph Company, one of the units of the Motion Picture Trust, and he had already experimented with the longer picture in the Judith of Bethulia. Indeed, I wish to say right here that I lay no claim to pioneer thought in realizing that the screen was susceptible of longer and more varied treatment For in addition to our American Judith of Lithuania, one or two foreign pictures had heralded the new era. Any possible credit to me, therefore, must be accorded to my conception of the new sort of photo play as a systematic performance rather than a sporadic spectacle. Indeed, I was to find out later that even this idea was not an exclusive visitation. Lasky and I had supposed that we were the only ones in the field, but it was not long before we discovered that even previous to us, another man had acted on the same idea. But go back to my interview with Mr. Griffith. I met him for lunch, and I was impressed immediately by the personality which has since lifted him into this place as the greatest of screen directors. Tall and spare and quite stooped, Mr. Griffith's figure suggests, by its very lack of erectness, that reserve of energy which transforms him in the studio to his tireless, almost demoniacal worker. His features are clear cut, and to the suggestion of the eagle in his profile, the clear blue eyes, eyes which you could never possibly mistake for gray even across a room, contribute a final authority. These eyes, while he is at work, so people tell me, glow with enthusiasm. But during the chance interview, they join with the mouth in a look of amused observation. With the expression, he heard me make my proposition that day. When he finally spoke, it was to quench any hope that Mr Griffith might ever become associated with Lasky and me. A very interested project, he commented. And if you can show me a bank deposit of $250,000, I think we might talk. I did not betray the meager conversational basis which I had to offer. Instead... Lasky and I now approached a friend of ours, Cecil DeMille. Mr. DeMille, although very little more than 30 years of age at this time, was already known as a playwright of considerable skill. His father had been Belasco's partner, and he himself had been associated with the celebrated theatrical producer in writing, the return of Peter Grimm. With all of his dramatic tradition and achievement, Mr. DeMille had one limitation. At this time, he had never directed a picture. More than this, he had never even seen one directed. However, neither he nor we were daunted ...by this slight flaw in his equipment. And after a day or two spent in the Edison Studios... ...Mr. DeMille went out to California to shoot our first picture. For his services, he was paid $100 a week... ...and was promised, in addition, some stock in the company. When you reflect that today... He receives approximately $5,000 a week, together with a large percentage of the returns of every production. It helps you to realize that the genie of the screen has functioned almost as well as did his ancestor of the Arabian Nights, and in no place is the magic more apparent than in California. When DeMille went out to Los Angeles to look around for a sight, Hollywood promised nothing of its present pomp. The vast studios, the beautiful villas, the famous pleasure places, all have arisen in the past decade. It indeed, only a flashback from the famous player's Lasky studios of today to our humble residence of nine years ago to give you a complete sense of the growth of the industry. The site which we finally selected was one floor of a livery stable, here in this space, out of which had been created, in addition to the studio five small dressing rooms, our director made that, the first film. The elaborate sets were the undreamed of, painted backgrounds achieved their duties, and our scenic equipment consisted of four canvas wings and two pieces of canvas. Likewise absent was the modern, complicated system of lighting. The sun was our only electrician in those days. And with the aid of three or four men, DeMille set to work in a studio where the weekly payroll now numbers 1150 people. Yet in spite of such simplified conditions, it cost us $47,000 to make that first picture. Nowadays, that sum is inadequate for any long production, but in those times it was unprecedented. Of course the cost of the motion picture rights of our first drama accounted for this expenditure. This drama was the squaw man recently revived by Mr William Favisham, and for it we guaranteed royalty rights of ten thousand dollars. 10,000, and our capital was only 10,000 more. On the 29th of December 1913, DeMille began making the picture, but before he had even touched it, I had got enough orders on that unmaterialized merchandise to ensure the production of the second picture. I represented the executive end of our enterprise, and my first move had been to make newspaper announcement of the fact that the Lasky Company, as we had decided to call our organization, was going to produce a yearly series of 12 five real pictures, beginning with the Squaw Man in New York. I awaited the results, which would prevail, the trust or the new kind of picture. I was not kept long in suspense. Almost immediately, theatre managers and letters from theatre managers began to pour in. These functionaries had been partially paralysed by the trust and their quick response to our announcement indicated just how eager they were for an opportunity to regain their prestige. Although I had, of course, counted upon such reaction, the swiftness and volume of those first orders overwhelmed me with incredulous joy. Chapter 2 Records the success of an idea. I am compelled to say right here that life had not led me to expect any such facility, for I had been a poor boy and often homeless. Of formal schooling, I had practically none. At the age when most boys take arithmetic and a roof, and three square meals, as a matter of course. I was fending for myself. When I got these things, it was through odd jobs in blacksmith shops and in glove factories. Sometimes, of course, I did not get them at all. For example, I remember how once, as a boy of twelve, I wandered for a whole week, through the streets of London, with no more ardent guarantee of the future than a loaf of bread. My early boyhood was spent in Europe, and I was just fourteen when, absolutely alone and with no friend or relative to greet me, I arrived in New York City. From the city I went from Gloversville, New York, and there After about four or five years spent in a glove factory, I succeeded in persuading a firm that I could sell gloves. I can say without arrogance of heart that I did sell them, but there was no miracle of ease about this process. I travelled from coast to coast. I often worked 18 hours a day, I put over my product in districts, where it never sold. As a result of all this, I was making about $15,000 a year at the time, when I chanced in upon that little motion picture theatre. I also owned stock in my company, and thanks to an expanded income, I had been able to supplement my fragmentary schooling by many lectures and concerts, and by frequent trips to Europe. But although at 30, I was a comparatively successful man, I was not satisfied. I never had been satisfied. I can remember how, when a boy in the cutting department, I used to walk by the leading hotel in Gloversville, and look at the drummers who cocked their feet up in the big plate glass window. How I envied them, those splendid adventurers, with their hats and their massive cigars, both at an angle. For to me they represented the everlasting romance of the far horizon. And when at last I myself was admitted to the peerage, I was sensible, of course, of another, greater goal. I have made many mistakes in my life, but I can honestly say that they were all results of the unceasing effort on my part to reach the bigger thing, just beyond. But to return to my story, it soon became apparent that we needed more money for the production of the Squaw Man how were we going to raise that necessary $25,000 our first approach to the problem was a personal one Lasky and I had asked any number of people we knew if they didn't want some stock in the Lasky company but all of them were sceptical. At last, however, we were able to borrow the needed funds out of the bank. DeMille resumed work on the picture, and a few weeks afterward, he returned to New York with the precious merchandise. Meanwhile, he had wired us that there was something wrong with the film, but even this did not prepare me for my first glimpse of the production upon which I had staked everything. Buzz, in the silence of that deserted studio, we heard the machine begin its work. And then, as from a very far shore, I heard Lasky's voice. We're ruined, he said. He was only saying what I myself had been too sick with horror to exclaim. For like a mad dervish, the home of the noble English Earl, together with all the titled ladies who moved therein, had jumped across the screen. Time refused to stabilise them. They went right on jumping, and with gathering despair, we looked on, ...what we were supposed to be the wreck of $47,000. That it was not a wreck... ...was due to the aid of some from whom... ...we had no right to expect it. At that time, the late Sigmund Lubin of Philadelphia... ...was head of one of the ten companies which we were fighting. Nevertheless, it was to him... I appealed for expert advice. I took the roll of film over to Philadelphia, and with a largeness of spirit which I shall never forget, the old gentleman saved me, his threatened rival, from utter ruin. He pointed out that the time stop was wrong. No, not an irremediable fact. In the joy of this discovery I overlooked the hardship of his cure. Yet this was to paste by hand new perforations on both edges of a film that was nearly a mile long. The story of the beginning of the Lasky Company is now coming to a close. To it I might add a thousand picturesque and amusing details but I realise that the chief interest of my reminisces is focused not upon the development of the motion picture industry, dramatic as that undoubtedly is, but upon the celebrated personalities with which my life has brought me into contact. I have delayed this long. The more vital communications, because of the transition from the former impoverished photo plays to the elaborate spectacle of today, involved many producers and brought it with the rise of all our famous stars, to give a real insight into the lives of Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, Norma Talmadge, Douglas Fairbanks. Wallace Reed, Harold Lloyd, Mabel Normand, and other famous screen artists obligates, in fact, the background of photoplay history involved in the start of the Lasky Company. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope it's helped you lull yourself to sleep. I look forward to bringing you more episodes. And if you're not quite tired yet, please tune in to one of the other episodes. Until next time, rest easy.